Bonnie Sue Hiscock was born and raised in Alaska. Her debut novel, The Smell of Other People's Houses, won the first ever 2018 Alaskan Award for Children's Literature from the Alaska Library Association. It was also shortlisted for the Silip Carnegie Award and the 2017 UKLA Award, along with nominations for many other prestigious awards. She met recently with Nikki Gamble to talk about her highly anticipated second novel, Everyone Dies Famous in a Small Town. A set of stories based in the rural west of America, covering the territory from Colorado to Alaska. Nikki asked Bonnie Sue to give us some context and to explain what connects the places she writes about. Growing up in Alaska, like I did, I really, I'm terrible with geography of the lower 48 states. And I could never have written this book until recently when I finally lived in Colorado for a little bit and got a sense of what other places are like. So um, two of the stories are set in Alaska. And then the other stories are kind of sprinkled from like the coast of Washington um, to Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. What connects the stories is basically just the sense of living in a small town. Um, they're all sort of rural places also where the threat of wildfire is pretty prevalent in Alaska for sure, in Colorado, Wyoming. You know, when we have a huge wildfire, it can we can see wildfire smoke here, but the fire might be in the middle of Ontario, Canada, which is thousands of miles away. So that's a big link. But I think mostly the links of the stories, as I've written them, are about that internal life that you live in a small town and the ways you think you know people just because you see them all the time. And you, you know, there's this really interesting way of feeling like everyone knows everything about you. And yet, there are so many misconceptions as well. So those are the big themes that I was mm. sort of trying to write about. <laughs> mm. And there are lots of those things that you've said there that I'm hoping we're going to pick up and explore in a little bit more detail. Tell us a bit about the first story, because we're going to hear a, a little reading from that. So ironically, the first story was a story that um, was supposed to be included in my last novel, which was um, The Smell of Other People's Houses. Uh, it just, it was a story that, well, there were quite a few stories that were cut from that book. Um, that book, originally, I tried to make it similar to this one. And over time and through the editing process, it changed quite dr dramatically. So I, I sort of begged my editors to let me try this again, this short stories that are linked and that tell a bigger story. But um, I love this format. And so the first one is a, a girl named Gina and her mother died about a year ago and her father has now moved on. He's met someone and she has a daughter who's really young, like about six. And Gina is just angry. She's been angry for the entire year. And she doesn't really quite know what to do with her anger. And so she, um, in this story, she's just going, taking her father's girlfriend's daughter <laughs> named Poppy. And they're going off to the, to go ice skating. And they've taken her her dog and the dog sled and they're going to the pond that way. And they also take, well, Poppy takes with her Elizabeth, who is an invisible friend. Um, Elizabeth is an invisible mermaid. 
Mm-hmm. And she is a very good friend of Poppy's. And that's one of the links that kind of travels through the story. We, we get to see Poppy and Elizabeth again later mm-hmm. and then it builds and builds. And so those kinds of things will pop up in other stories as well. Mm. So. so maybe we could hear a bit from Angry Starfish. Sure. <laughs> I'll start with this line, which is sort of encompasses the whole book. In a small town, you are forever defined by the worst thing that ever happened to you. And just like her mother dying, Gina didn't know how to stop it. Oh, Poppy had just told her, this is a little backstory too, that Gina reminds her of a starfish. And so she says, how am I like a starfish? That's ridiculous. She thought it might have something to do with the word star being misapplied. But Gina was surprised as Poppy plowed on, unaware that she might be treading dangerously close to the thin ice that was Gina's temper. Greta says starfish are actually bad. Well, isn't Greta just an expert on everything? No, I mean bad for the fishermen. Starfish eat the bait off their hooks. How is it that I'm eating anyone's bait? Gina had no idea where this was going, and it was getting cold sitting in one spot. Poppy, we have to skate. We're going to freeze. Okay. Poppy wanted to hold her hand, and Gina knew it, but she skated off before that could happen. Backward. She watched the younger girl struggle to get her stride in Gina's old skates, which were too big despite all those socks. The beaver skin hat kept slipping over Poppy's eyes, so every two seconds she had to push it up again. The girl was drowning in animal fur. What would Libby say if Gina brought Poppy back as a wriggling beaver and said she didn't know how it had happened? Maybe Libby would be furious and never come back to their house. Gina wouldn't mind if Libby stayed away, especially at night. She hated thinking of Libby in her mother's bed, changing the smell of the sheets and pillows. She didn't care what her father did with Libby. She just wanted him to do it somewhere else because she was starting to forget her mother. The sheets had always smelled like lavender and mint and wet dogs. Bits of dog hair clung to everything because the washing machine was full of dog hair. So even clean, all their laundry was furry. But once Libby had started staying over, the sheets smelled more like coffee and chocolate and some flower Gina couldn't identify. Sometimes Gina sat in her mother's closet and breathed in her clothes, which was like sitting in a bog near ripe lowbush cranberries because her mother had spent so many hours picking that smashed berry juice permanently saturated her sweaters and the knees of her jeans. But that too was slowly fading. It had already been over a year. As long as there was a hint of moldy cranberry emanating from that closet, maybe her mom would never really be gone. Wait up, Gina! It's very moving because at the end we just get a feeling that she's warming to this poor little girl whose hands are freezing and you know she's concerned about her isn't she at the end of she finally yes she finally starts to come outside of herself and notice that there are other people who you know like poppy who Mm. you know she's just so consumed with her own grief for so long I read that to my grandmother, who's 101, and she's, well, there's also a lot of humor, like I think dark Alaskan humor, and I thought it was interesting to read it to my grandmother, because she laughed through the entire thing, even the really dark, difficult parts, but her comment to me was, you know, Gina just needs to get a grip on herself or something, so, you know, something that an old, stoic uh, mm-hmm. 101-year-old would say. Mm-hmm. 
there was yeah. something about the outdoors and the fact that it's a stereotype really my assumption that everybody who lived in Alaska must enjoy the great outdoors you even make the point at one point in the book that just because you live here doesn't mean you necessarily like the outdoors I thought what really yeah one of the stories called Alaska was wasted on us actually deals with that exact thing people come here you know it's interesting they come to Alaska and so many people choose to live here and don't even think that there is a possibility that some of us were just born here. And the common question is always, what brought you to Alaska? And I just find it exhausting myself. So I think I had a good time writing that story about debunking some of the stereotypes. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Now, one of the things that I hugely admire Um, it has to be said, is that within these stories, we have a cast of many characters, some of them with interlocking lives, which we can talk about. But even with that vast canvas of characters, I felt that I got to know them all within a space of a few pages really well. And I think it's a sort of writing from the interiority of the character. It's not about big events. I mean, big things do happen. But it's not about big events. It's all about how it's going on in their heads. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think it is a quiet book. I don't think it's a book you want to pick up if you want some adventure thriller. And even though big things happen, as you say, um, I've never been able to write a story like to think of it as, oh, this this would be so cool. This event, this thing happens. And when I try to do that, it just sort of falls flat. But if I start... On the in the interior of a person or their emotional landscape and kind of work my way out. I'm able to build the the exterior life, but I have to start with the interior part. And I think it's interesting too with short stories, you know, they do have to read like a novel where the story, you know, needs to have some sort of action and resolution. So it's a really hard thing to do. I, I love the challenge and I love short stories. So it's nice when somebody says that they really connected with the characters. And um, I mean, I think that that's really the point is that we are all more similar than we are different. I had been working as a contact tracer during COVID times, and it just reiterated that to me, how similar we are. And, you know, we all were facing this, this one thing together. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. And I really love the way stories can remind us that we are connected. And I, I love drawing those connections for people. I was in awe of the structure because it's somewhere between short stories and novel. I don't think you could read them in any order, could you? They are written to be read in a particular order. And yes. it's interesting as a reader how your world building develops as you move through the stories so there must have been a lot of turning and throwing putting all those threads together yeah it was really a mess actually (laughs) I usually make really big story maps and you know sort of like on a big piece of butcher paper and then draw lines with different colored markers and especially with this many characters and this many themes you know, I have two editors that I work with simultaneously. And so the back and forth editing process was 
really where you could see if you if you saw our editorial letters, you'd see that back and forth. And then it came to this point where the stories were in this order. And I remember Alice Swan at Faber saying, it's like you planned it, but we, you know, I didn't plan it. And I think that's the interesting thing about writing is how it can surprise the writer too, you know, how it works out. It didn't look like it was going to work for a really long time. And that's why it takes me so long. It's been five years since my last book, because I really do. It takes me time to get all those threads together and to make it cohesive. It's cohesive and it's not too contrived. I think that's what's really lovely about it. Not everything connects. Not everything has to. And, you know, sometimes there's a hint there. In some of the uh, stories, there's a priest, but you don't name the priest. So you don't know if you're making a connection or not as you go through. So you have to, your mind has to do a bit of unraveling as you read. Those discussions, what you just said, those happened constantly um, between me and my editors. You know, like, why is she feeling sorry for him um, in this story when we know in this story that he did this thing? And I think it really does give the reader, I personally, when I read a book, I love to think that the author has sort of involved me in the decision making and the problem solving and also given me a little just respect in the sense of they're not going to tie it all up. It shouldn't make you crazy. It shouldn't be befuddling. It should It should actually be something that you enjoy. I think it's a reader who can tolerate ambiguity. Somebody that's right. happy to go with the flow and to make some of those connections and not worry if they don't get everything. <laughs> and then again, that's a conversation. You know, I, I do get that chance sometimes with readers where they'll say, why did you do this? It made me so frustrated or whatever. And then you have that conversation sort of like I did when I was a contact tracer. So I love that. I think that is what connects us as human beings. Not that we agree on everything, but that we have these conversations that open our minds to another way of thinking or being. And, you know, it's hard in a small town and that goes back to the book. It's so hard to remake yourself if you want to. I know my daughter, we lived in a really small town on an island in Alaska, and she was very reclusive and shy. But then as she got older, she became a dancer. And But she couldn't get out of that reclusive, shy stereotype mm-hmm. that had been given to her, even to the point where if she did have a conversation with someone, they would say something like, oh, you used to never talk. And it would make her just so angry that they had to bring that up every time. I think there's the story with Martha and Jane. It's in sea shaken houses, isn't it? And somebody comes uh, into their world, as it were. Their world has become increasingly small as people have left this town. She says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry about that. But she That's said it's an no, opportunity it's to try out being a new person on a stranger, which <laughs> I loved. That was tough for me to write, to be honest with you. I wasn't really a fan of Martha, and but I had to write her character so that you could... It, you know, that there was a little bit of retrospection going on there because that story happens after the third story. So you go back in mm-hmm. time. And so I have had I have actually had that conversation with people as well, where they just said, Oh, I judged Martha too soon. You know, mm-hmm. that's good. That's how the that's how it was written. Just while we're talking about structure, there's a shift in tense with the last chapter. You move to the present tense. Because of the way that the book came together. Was that always written in the present tense or is that something that changed as you were shaping the book? 
I kind of jump around and make my editors mm. a little bit nutty. But the last story, well, I, I don't want to do any spoilers, but there was a specific reason for that. It did change a few times and it took some finessing to mm. make that happen. Even when I read it now myself, mm. I notice it too and think, oh, that's right. We did that. Some of the stories are set and the date is is given, 1995. Is that significant? It's significant for the tone, right? For the pacing. It slows it down. I talked to you a little bit before about the pace of life in Alaska and how slow it seems here. And I definitely want the novel to be set in a time where there it's not easy to get information because so much of it relies on misinformation as the motivation for the characters, you know, and there is a scene where Martha and Jane are writing letters to each other. And I know one of the copy editors said, why don't they just email? And, you know, so I think it does, it doesn't feel necessarily that it's 1995. I mean, in a way it feels present, but I don't think the characters could have the motivations that they have or do the things they do if they had cell phones. There were, Several themes that um, I was interested in in picking up. Um, one we've touched on a little bit. It was to do with strangers, strangers and trust, and outsiders and trust. A couple of things that I picked up. One was the quote about the beauty of strangers, all the things that we cannot know. And I was just going along with that idea and thinking, yeah, that's really interesting. All the things they don't know about you. And then we come on to this chapter, The Stranger in the Woods, and you start thinking differently again. I liked the dichotomy of those two sentiments, that a stranger is like a blank canvas, but it could be a negative as well as a positive Um, And that particular story, The Stranger in the Woods, is actually based on something that really did happen to me in real life when I was seven and I was riding my bike and someone came out of the woods. And, you know, I think it was so unusual to see a stranger in my world that I didn't even really think of it as something scary. It was just this exotic thing. And he actually had a $5 bill in his hand and said, here's $5. And that's a lot of money <laughs> for me. <laughs> and and then he says, there's, there's more money where that came from if you just come back through these woods with me. And I just said, oh, no, this is just enough. This is just what I needed. And I rode my bike home. And, you know, I didn't even really understand the reaction that my parents had where they actually called the police mm. and they came out. And none of that really made sense. But, you know, over time, you think about these things, or I do, so many things from my childhood end up in my stories, because I've pondered them and thought about all the different ways that they could have gone. And then I just create fictional characters and create this other scenario. I mean, the other place that it crops up is with the radio host, Coyote Joe, who they trust, because they hear him all the time everybody and loves him right you worked in radio didn't you I did I worked in radio and you know I thought it was fascinating that people who you've never met they get to know your voice and they they start to trust you and it really became that and they would tell me you could tell us anything on the radio and we would believe it it's not so much the details that are true as the the feeling mm. behind it 
I didn't really have an intention, Nikki, for writing this. I just, it just enjoyed writing about all of these little quirky things that I know and that Mm -hmm. I've experienced in my life. And it makes me wonder, like, how are strangers going to read this book? Because <laughs> it feels yeah, like an inside joke. <laughs> we'll all take different things from it. Can I ask about wildfires? Um, because that's very much a threat throughout the book. And, you know, very present in one of the chapters. There's a, one of the stories. There's a real fire there. Um, I hadn't realized that they affected Alaska. I'd always thought of them as being further south in alaska we have huge wildfires we had four million acres burn in 2005 when i was a reporter i had to report on that so wildfires have kind of always been in my consciousness as just from experience of doing that but we're very used to them here and we deal with the smoke and we deal with you know the air quality um, but we don't we don't have as many people so we can just let them burn and let nature sort of do its thing to a point. But right when I was writing this, we did have a lightning strike that was just right here, like literally right behind where I'm talking to you. And we did have to evacuate. And I really hadn't intended wildfire to be such a big part of the book, but that was all happening as I was writing that that story. And so the details were just right there in front of me and I was able to kind of capture it in the story. Even though that story is set in Colorado, I was taking most of the details from the fire that we were experiencing here. Even the parts where the whole town is showering together at the school, mm-hmm. that that is actually truly what happened. And they would smell like a like a marshmallow, like a burnt <laughs> charcoal. And I even saw somebody with a tattoo in the shower that's similar to the one that shows up on the firefighter in the book. So I did take a lot of... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, you know poetic license there yeah. I've just got one more question I feel that I've got many more questions or maybe just observations uh, but I was interested um, in your epigraph which is a quote from Brecht and to those who do not know that the world is on fire I have nothing to say so there must have been a reason for you to pick that when I first chose it, it was really about the story. It really wasn't about literal fire. It was mm-hmm. metaphorical. And there was a lot going on with um, the Catholic Church and priest abuse and things like that, and just the denial. And I think what I was thinking of at the time was the idea like there's so much going on below the surface in life. And just when people refuse to believe that something is happening right in front of their face, I guess is what I was thinking. Well, I have to thank you so much for taking time in what is the early morning over in Alaska, but not so early here. I'm really grateful for you getting up to have this uh, conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. (laughs) In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.